Hebrews is a letter written to people who have been shaken in life. You'll remember that this letter is written to an ancient church that was an urban church. They lived in a city much like we do, and they had faced trials. They had faced sufferings. They had been persecuted for their faith. Some people had lost homes. Some people had lost jobs. Some people had lost their lives. And this has shaken them to the core. And so the author of Hebrews, who's also their pastor, writes a sermon delivered as a letter for them. And he encourages them to find the unshakable life in the midst of a shakable world. He encourages them to endure even as the seasons and the, the, the sands shift and change beneath their feet. And today we actually arrive at the, the rhetorical climax of the letter, which is kind of exciting. We started this letter in September and now we're at the kind of pinnacle of the author's thoughts for the church. But as we read this passage, I can't help but have Toronto on my mind and in my heart. And while this passage doesn't explain why God allows such tragedies to take place in our world, it does set the stage for us. It does set the context. It helps us get our bearings in a world where tragedies like this happen far too often. And so with all of this in mind, with the challenges of faith, with the challenges of existing in this world, the challenge of being shaken ourselves, this is the big idea I want to explore this morning. In a shakable world, we can discover an unshakable life. In a shakable world, we can discover an unshakable life. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Hebrews chapter 12. It's towards uh, the back of the Bible. And if you don't own one, uh, take one of our gray Bibles home with you. Everything's also going to be on the screen behind me. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. The author writes, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg, that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. If we were going to summarize this passage, this experience with God at this mountain in one word, that word would be terror. This is a mountain of fear. Uh, the writer, Alison Lada, ex experienced a massive earthquake while she was in Santiago, and she describes it like this. I awaken to the bed swaying gently at first, and because I'm half asleep and not from here, I think, cool, a tremor. I'm just that naive. It's 3.34 a.m., and the floor is shaking harder now, and I try to stand. A surge throws me backward, and suddenly my 14th floor Santiago hotel room comes alive like an angry animal shaking a smaller one in its teeth. It lurches one way and then the other, and the air fills with the buildings in human noises, rumbles and groans, the screeching of metal. Around me, pictures thud against the walls, drawers open and bang shut, window curtains shriek and their rods. Then the lights go out. Panic squeezes the breath from me. The cacophony is more unholy in the dark. This description of an earthquake sounds a lot like our passage. The author, he's recounting an experience ancient Israel had with God, a defining experience of their national identity, their personal identities, when God brought them out to Mount Sinai and appeared. But it sounds a lot more like experiencing an earthquake than something profoundly spiritual. You know, heaven bends and touches earth, and it's terrifying. The mountain is engulfed in fire. It's set against a back 
backdrop of darkness and intensifying gloom, you know, violent winds like a hurricane are pressing against the people and a siren trumpet blasts throughout the desert. Now, this sounds like a disaster zone. And yet, this is how God appeared to his people. This is God appearing saying, I am the Lord your God. I will be your God and you will be my people. And here are my ways. Here are the Ten Commandments. Here's how you follow me. This is defining for the relationship with God, but it confronts us more like a shaking earthquake. You see, we're confronted with the fact that our God is not tame. As C.S. Lewis famously said, our God is good, but he is not safe. Those who were there, Those who saw the fire, those enveloped by the darkness and the gloom, pressed hard by the winds, they begged for it to stop. The author writes, they could not endure. They could not endure it. They begged, God, don't speak another word. And it's a little odd, don't you think? This whole letter, the author has been encouraging our endurance. And at the pinnacle of the letter, he now says, the people could not endure the very presence of God. So we're enduring in a world to go into a reality that we cannot endure. It's, it's shocking. And so they begged, no, no more message, no more words, no more speaking. Just stop, God. We've seen enough. You go back to heaven, we'll stay here on earth. They can't handle it. It's too much. Now, this is not the popular version of God. This is not the vision of God that we sing about. No one's singing like, holy fire, tear falling down on my face, screaming in fear of the Lord. Like that's not <laughs> what we're singing in our songs. But this is the vision of God in the scriptures often. But here's the thing. Fear and dread is a primary response to the presence of God throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Moses, the spiritual elite, Moses, who spoke to God face to face. Moses says, I tremble with fear. Isaiah, the prophet, encounters God. He says, woe is me, I'm undone, or I'm shattered, I'm falling apart. The apostle Peter cries, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. God's presence has a way of shattering us, of causing us to shake and come undone before him, becoming aware of our frailty or put more bluntly, aware of our sinfulness before him. But if there's a God, this is generally not how we think we'll respond to God's presence, is it? You think if there's a God that I'll be able to stand before him and he'll see, well, I tried my best. I lived to my standards. I lived a good life, God will accept me. And if not, so what? If there's a God, we'll draw near to him and it'll it'll work out. When I was in the fifth grade, I had a friend named Sean, Sean Sunberg. Uh, And for a 10-year-old boy, Sean Sean was a remarkably handsome guy. I mean, like Greek God material. And since I was his friend, I assumed, simply by association, I was as good-looking as Sean. And every recess, Sean and I would play wall ball. Anyone play wall ball? You had tennis ball, you throw it against the wall, you take turns catching it. And, and while we would do this, we would banter. And I remember very clearly one recess, Sean and I were playing wall ball and he asked me, Alistair, which girls do you think you could have as your girlfriend? And he pointed to the, the elementary school field. And without much hesitation, in all seriousness, I said, any of them. 
And Sean just started laughing at me, and I couldn't fathom why he was laughing, and he laughed out, no, you couldn't. And I lost track of the ball, and it smacked me upside of the head. And, and this was a bruise to my 10-year-old psyche. It turned out I wasn't a 10 out of a 10. I was more like a 9 out of a 10. But <laughs> I had discovered I had a misplaced estimation of myself. I had a misplaced estimation of myself. If you think you could have st stood at this mountain at Mount Sinai without trembling, without fear, if you think, as popular opinion says, that if there's a God, you could stand before him and he would actually owe you answers to your questions before you would listen to him, if you think you could stand before God with your own goodness as if it's somehow impressive before God or your accomplishments, you have a misplaced estimation of yourself. So let me wall ball you back to experience. In this scene, at this mountain, God gave his people Ethics 101. He gave them the Ten Commandments. We all know the Ten Commandments, right? From heart, Ten Commands. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't make idols. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Honor the Sabbath. Honor your father and your mother. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet. But for some good and decent people, these commandments, they're too simple, aren't they? Too basic. Uh, recently in an interview, the philosopher and neuroscientist Sam Harris, he said this, consider the possibility of improving upon the Ten Commandments. Almost any precept would improve the wisdom of the Bible. How about don't mistreat children? Don't pretend to know things you do not know. Or what about try not to deep fry all of your food? But before we think about improving or expanding upon the Ten Commandments, we should ask, has anyone ever actually kept the commandments without failing? Most of us in this room probably couldn't even name all ten of them if we had to. Even something simple like the golden rule, do unto others as you would have done unto you. I can only speak for myself, but I have never made it through the day upholding the golden rule. I have never treated other people with the same amount of care and patience and focus and willingness to serve as I expect everyone to treat me. I have never dropped things immediately, consistently, and put other people's demands or requirements before my own consistently as in the same way that I expect people to do that for me. When it comes to God's simplest commands, nobody has even come close to keeping them day after day, moment after moment. But here's what we tend to miss when talking about the commandments, the thing that goes overlooked. Even if we came up with more commands, and humanity has, even if we make them more eloquent, even if we wax poetic, even if we modernize them for the issues we face, like not deep frying all of your food, the very fact that we need commandments, we need instructions, we need laws, it says something about our humanity. It says something about us. If we were truly good through and through, if we were without blemish, if we were not capable of coveting or lying or murdering or stealing or refusing to acknowledge God as God, then no instruction or command would be necessary at all. But we need commandments because in varying degrees, the one thing we all have in common in this room is that we're moral failures. None of us, none of us could bear to have a true assessment of ourselves a completely objective judge examining our entire lives and showing us what's 
what? None of us could handle it. None of us could handle seeing how self-absorbed and self-consumed we are in our thought lives in comparison to how much attention and time we actually put to serving and caring for the poor. None of us could handle being exposed to how uh, we think we care about truth, we think we care about compassion, we think we're kind, we think we're gentle, but then seeing what we actually are day after day, moment after moment. We're not nearly as put together as as we, are, we like to think we are. We're not nearly as good as we like to tell ourselves that we are. And here's the thing. I can tell by some of your faces right now, you don't like what I'm telling you. you. You won't believe it. I don't like it either. But what Scripture shows is if we're going to stand before the presence of a perfect and holy God, He is going to shatter our, 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 our perceived goodness. We're going to come undone. Because in the presence of God, the truth is inescapable. And that's why his presence terrifies us. That's why it shatters us in our core. Because our misplaced estimation of ourselves, it crumbles. You might be exposed to someone who's just really good at virtue signaling. Someone who knows how to sound like they care about justice, but does nothing about it. Someone who knows how to appear caring, while never really truly caring for anyone beyond your own purposes and desires. See, all the secrets, all the unspoken words, they come pouring out in the light, and our goodness is exposed as a cheap veneer compared to the perfect standards of God. But in appearing at all, God showing up, even though it's terrifying, it shows that God cares about being known. In giving us instructions and commands, it shows that God actually cares about our flourishing. He wants to see us thrive and live and find life and goodness. But the problem is we haven't walked in God's ways, not even close. And if we were to draw near to God, just as we are on our own terms, it would be terrifying. It would be like living through an earthquake and being shaken at the core and shaken and shaken until we cry out like Moses I'm terrified. Or like Isaiah, woe is me, I'm coming undone. But do you remember how this passage began? You have not come to this reality. You have not come to a reality where your life will be so easily shaken that you unravel. Instead, you have come to an unshakable way of life. And so the author pours out this vision for us in verses 22 through 23. But you have come, so you've not come, and now you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Tim Keller suggests if you took this book and you scratched off the word Bible, you could uh, easily put a tale of two cities. And I think that's spot on. If you go through scripture, you see really there's two cities being constructed. There's the city that humankind is building by their own ingenuity and efforts. And then there's the city of God that God has built and promised to creation. And the Bible explores these two cities and how they live at odds and sometimes in parallel to one another. You see, history shows us cities, they come and go. You know, where's the great city of Troy, Petra? 
Now, human cities, they can be shaken, they can destroy, they can rise up to power and fall the next day. But the author says, we have come to this long-expected city of God, this promised city that we see in the book of Revelation most clearly, a city that descends from heaven to exist on earth, the unshakable city, the city where God will be our God and we will be his people, the city where every tear is wiped away, where every injustice is righted, where every wrong is healed, where loss is restored, and then some. A city built around true human flourishing, where there's no more unrighteousness or wrongdoing, a city where everyone's primary aim is to serve others before themselves. Can you imagine walking the streets of a city like this, where you're among people whose primary concern is to care well for you, and your primary concern is to care well for them? How great would it be to live in a city like this? And yet, to our astonishment, the author of Hebrews says, you have come to this city. You have come to live in the city of God. You can experience it, maybe not in its fullness, but at least partially here and now. We get to live as a pilot plant of the city of God in the city of Vancouver. That's what the author is telling us. We get to live as citizens of the kingdom of God for the sake of the city of Vancouver. We get to live as an example, and perfectly so, of a different kind of love, a different kind of goodness, a different kind of kindness, a different kind of justice, all that gives a crack in the veneer of the city of Vancouver so we can see the kingdom of God is at hand. It's in our midst. And the author's saying, you can taste this here now. You can begin to experience this here now. You have come to this city, and you know what the experience is like? Joy. The unshakable city is an experience of unshakable joy. This passage tells us it's full of angels, worshiping in festal gathering, or as other translations put it, joyful assembly. You see, this is not a mountain of fear that we've come to. We've come to a mountain of overwhelming joy. I like the way F.B. Meyer puts it. Joy is peace dancing, and peace is joy at rest. Joy is peace dancing, and peace is joy at rest. We have come to a city with this kind of joy. But the Greek here, and why you see, you know, different Uh, completely different translations for this word, is it's an unusual word. It surprises scholars. It's essentially a wild party. You have come to angels throwing a wild party. You could say we get to be co-partiers with God. The city of God is like a wild party. I mean, this is hard for us to imagine. This is not how we talk about heaven, but imagine if you dare without the debauchery, without the conflict, without the comparison games, without the social competition, a party that rivals any party thrown by Gatsby, a festival full and more life and celebration and joy than Mardi Gras or Coachella. (laughs) But it's difficult to run with this image. We're more prone to think of heaven like a trivial pursuit night, fun for some people, hell for the rest of us. (laughs) The best parties and festivals on earth. They need an element. They need something to remove our inhibitions and barriers so that we can truly celebrate. You know, a costume 
party or masks or music or alcohol or drugs. We need something that lowers our inhibition so we can connect with who we are and celebrate and find joy. That's how parties work on this side of eternity. But on this side of eternity, it usually leads to some regret or a hangover at the very least or conflict or disappointment because you can't actually sustain that moment of celebration. But at this joyful assembly where we get to be co-partiers with God, the party that rivals all parties we can fathom, our inhibitions are cast aside, but not because of anything we've consumed, but because we've finally been made whole. All these broken things in us that distort and fracture who we've called to be, they're gone. They're, they're healed. They're, they're tossed in the garbage because God cares about your flourishing. He cares about who you become and he has made you into that person that can celebrate with joy for all eternity in a joy that only amplifies and grows as we sing and dance and rest and enjoy living in the city of God. You see, we've come to an unshakable kingdom. This kingdom is marked by an unshakable joy, but it also gives us an unshakable identity. That's what this passage shows us. You can have an unshakable identity. Most of the things that we construct our identity around are shakable. You know, if you construct your identity around your looks one day, they're going to fade. That's why I structure my identity around my wife's looks, because she's always going to be beautiful. She's not in this service. She'll have to listen to that one. Uh, you, if you construct your identity around your career, your career, you might get fired. Your career will end. You'll have to wrestle with that. If you structure your identity around your finances or how successful you are in the markets and things always growing to the right and higher, that could fade. That could fall. If you construct your identity around your performance or how people perceived you, people's opinions of you, it's going to change from season to season, friendship to friendship. These are all unstable ways of constructing our identity because it'll fluctuate and these things will come and they'll go. And this is why I like St. Augustine so much. He said, I find my own self hard to grasp. You see, even on the best days, we struggle to know truly who we are because we, we tend to be the accumulation of our experiences, the accumulation of what people have said about us, good or bad. And hopefully, hopefully we're closer to the good things, right? The, the positive things people have said to us, the positive experiences we've had, not the negative stuff. But we see that we have an unstable identity because one comment, one comment, that's all it takes, right? To throw you into a temporary identity crisis. Those shoes with that pen? Mm -mm. That's your best work? You know, these comments, they, they, they stir us and they cripple us momentarily, maybe, or maybe longer, but it shows we've, we're building our identity on something that can't last. And so in this passage, in verse 23, here's the great hope. You are among the firstborn. You're firstborn. In the ancient world, this wasn't just a way of identity uh, or identifying who was born first. It was a way of communicating rights and privileges. The firstborn essentially inherited everything. They had it made simply by being born first, not because they did anything to deserve it. They were just simply there first, and they were going to inherit everything the family had, everything in the estate. And what Scripture is saying here is in the city of God, we are all firstborn. 
We're all given supreme and ultimate rights. We're enrolled in heaven and counted as God's children. We, as firstborn in God's city, everything that is God's, we have a right to. Do you understand that? I mean, Paul wrestling with this in Ephesians. He says, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. At the very least, that means that God is not withholding from you. That God desires your goodness and your flourishing and he will give you everything and then some when the kitty, the, the kitty, the kingdom comes. This is the source of an unshakable identity. You see, you can build your identity around this because this won't change because the author of Hebrews says, you've come to this already. Your name is already enrolled in heaven. And when you arrive here, you'll be perfected. This is already yours. We might struggle to make our identities. We might have moments of crisis. I'm not denying any of that on this side of eternity. But the author says, you, you've come to an unshakable identity. You're firstborn. You're a child of God. The, the Lord himself delights and rejoices and sings over you. But how is any of this possible? How do we move from the earthquaking terror of God into sharing in the joy of this new city? Because if you look at the center of this paragraph, this paragraph that describes all these good things, at the very center is this statement, God, the judge of all. He's at the center of it. God remains the judge. He hasn't changed. So how do we come into a city where God's judgment remains? As we've seen in this passage, when God appears, it shakes us and shakes us because God is judging us. He's evaluating us and we fall apart. But that's why the author says in verse 24, you have come to Jesus, our mediator, the mediator of a new covenant whose blood speaks a better word. Do you know in the gospels, uh, when Jesus is crucified, the gospels, when you bring them together, you see that, the world became dark and gloomy and the earthquake happened at the moment of his death and the, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. I don't think this is just a rhetorical flourish of the writers. I don't think God's just throwing in some extra pyrotechnics to draw attention to the cross. No, this is Mount Sinai all over again. The darkness, the gloom, the shaking of the earth. Jesus Christ was being judged. He was being shaken to his core. He was being shaken and came undone for us so that our lives don't have to be shaken, so that we can enter into the very presence of God. That's what it means when the curtain was torn. You can enter into the most precious presence of God because Christ gave his life for you to forgive you, to establish this new covenant where your sins are remembered no more. You see, other religions, not all religions, but most religions and, and ways of life, it's about what you have to do. Nuts and bolts of it, it's what you have to do. Keep these rules, do these steps, ascend this hill, and you'll reach enlightenment. What makes Christianity bizarre is that the judge of the universe becomes judged. The creator becomes the creation. He enters in to reveal that he is going to do everything that is required so that we can be in his presence. God's terrifying for us, but that's not what he wants. Do you understand that? It's terrifying because he's holy and he can't change that. He's perfect. 
And here we are, the clay and all our imperfections standing before him. And he knows that his very nature will consume us, not because he doesn't love us, but because of who he is. So he enters into creation. He becomes one of us. He offers the sacrifice required so that we can stand in his presence, not with fear, but with great joy for what he's done for us. Which is why the author says so bluntly in verse 25, do not refuse him who is speaking. Do you have ears to hear? Do not refuse him who is speaking. The letter of Hebrews, which we began in September, you may remember, starts with this. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And now the author says, do not refuse him who is speaking. Because you you'll find nothing that speaks to the quality of life that Jesus speaks to you will find no better word, no better way, no better path. Because God has spoken so that we can have an unshakable life. He's spoken a word of grace, a word of forgiveness, a word of reconciliation. He has spoken in such a way to receive us into his presence. And the author reminds us a lot is on the line. It's important not to refuse what you've heard. Look at the end of this passage. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. This world and everything in it, the universe, the entire cosmos, even heaven itself, it will be shaken. It will be shaken again. This past week, our brothers and sisters at St. Andrew's Church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, lost their building in a fire. They're, they're a part of our di diocese, they're a part of our, our church, and it, it's, it's incredibly sad. And fortunately, no one was harmed, but the building was devastated. And uh, I, I got an email from their lead pastor, the rector, Steve Brown, and he wrote this. Let me close with a picture that one of our members took with his drone at the end of the day. Amidst the ruin of our beloved sanctuary, you will see standing the emblem of our faith, the cross of Christ. That wooden cross was at the epicenter of the fire and it still stands. Their building's gonna get rebuilt. They've got insurance. At the end of the day though, it's just a building. It can't and won't ultimately stand. It won't remain. When God shakes the heavens and the earth, very little is going to remain. But what will remain is the cross of Christ. What will remain is what Jesus has done, what he has accomplished. What will remain are the people that he has reconciled, the people he has redeemed. What will remain is what he has truly done in and through you for the sake of the world. But that's it. The rest is going to be shaken away. You see, when God shakes us, and when we start to unravel, when we start to un come undone before the presence of God, he's shaking us to see if there is anything of eternal significance. If there's anything in there that can remain. He's shaking us to see, has my son dwelt in this person and made a home in this person? That's the only thing that can remain. And so the author invites us to take on the posture of an unshakable life in the last two verses. Therefore, let us be grateful. Now I want to be clear here. This is not a suggestion. 
In the Greek, this is an imperative. Be grateful. Like, how, how can you command gratefulness? How can you command that people be grateful? Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Your gratitude is parallel to what you have received. This is a kingdom that you could not earn. This is a kingdom that by no merit of your own that you could ever enter into. And yet, if you open yourself up to Jesus, the mediator of this new place, it's yours. And it's not just yours. You're receiving it always, always, always. You're not just waiting for a pie in the sky promise of a new city. You can begin to receive the kingdom of God here and now. Be grateful. Your gratitude will be in response to how much you contemplate what God is giving to you here and now. Be grateful you've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a joy that cannot be shaken, an identity that cannot be shaken. And then the author draws it out. The only proper response to, to grateful receiving is to offer our lives in worship. But he doesn't have in mind just a Sunday service where people gather and sing some songs, say some liturgy, hear a sermon. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about gathering with other Christians as good as that is in homes and throughout the week. He's talking about the disposition of their entire lives. From changing a diaper to resolving conflict with a coworker. He, he's talking about what you do or don't buy in the market to how you raise and care for your kids or how you tend to the relationships that matter most. He's saying, offer your entire lives to the only thing that will ever actually remain when this world is shaken. The message of the gospel and those whom God has reconciled to himself, these are the only things that will remain. He, all, he closes with this rather epic quotation from Deuteronomy. Our God is indeed a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire fire. But Jesus has endured the flames for us so that they now perfect us rather than consume us. So therefore, be grateful. Because even in a shakable world, we can discover an unshakable life, the very life of Jesus Christ, who wants to live in us so that we can live an unshakable life in this shakable world.